0: for our time of study and the Word this morning. For those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Timothy. And as we continue in our study this morning, we come to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 1. And my goal this morning is to cover verses 1 and 2. And the title of the message is Being an Instrument of Change. You want to be an instrument of change? I hope that you do. In fact, um, how many of you know people in this church that have a lot of changing to do? Raise your hand. All right. How many of you know people in your care group that have a lot of changing to do? Okay. How many of you are married to someone that... uh, Well, never mind. Won't press that, No, I mean, if if you're a part of the church of Jesus Christ, then uh, it's not long before you look around and see that that people are growing and changing and that there's a lot of growing and changing that still needs to happen. And God actually calls you to be an instrument or an agent of change in their life. And the beauty of this passage, verses 1 and 2, is that uh, the Lord, through Paul, is going to show us a paradigm of how we can be an instrument Of meaningful and genuine change in the lives of God's people, these two verses I have to tell you, and I don't know that I can altogether express why this is so, but they've been really sweet to bite into this week. Uh, I've really relished uh, every taste of these two verses as I've worked my way through them, studying them this week. There's just, I I hope as I preach this morning I can bring that out um, in in the message. But also part of what makes this dear to me is that the very paradigm that we see in these two verses on how to be an instrument of change, I have experienced in my own life on the receiving end. And I'll tell you just uh, something that happened to me when I was 18 that proved to be very formative in my life. When I was 18 years old, I had graduated from high school that year and um, in November of that year, which would have been nineteen eighty. Um, 83, 82 or 83. Um, I went with my family, my parents and siblings to a, um, a Christian life conference that was being held in the city of Indianapolis and it was being held at the convention center as it was on most years. And there were a few thousand people that were there in attendance and I was not walking with the Lord at the time. And uh, but I was there nonetheless, and we were showed up, I think it was every night of the week. And then I think on Friday and Saturday, we were there all day at the convention center. But throughout the entirety of the conference, I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't getting anything from the, the speaker that I should have been uh, receiving from uh, the material that he was presenting. In fact, for the entire conference, I sat on the very last row of a set of bleachers that was in the very back of the particular room in the convention center where we were uh, having the meeting. And, and I was sitting with uh, an old high school friend of mine, and we were pretty much just kicking back and talking, joking around, and not paying attention uh, very much at all. In fact, one of my memories, and I'm ashamed to say this, but one of my memories is that either he or I had gotten a hold of some hard candies And so we were at the very top of the bleachers. And so while the speaker was speaking, we were like taking those hard pieces of candy and dropping them from the top of the bleachers and letting them hit the floor and see how long it would take before contact was made. And sometimes the hard candies would shatter into many pieces. Other times it would bounce. And so we would just experiment with that while this conference um, was, was going on. And so through the entire conference, I got virtually nothing... Out of it. And if I merited anything from the Lord, what I deserved from Him was for Him to send someone to me to give me a very stern rebuke. But that's not what He sent my way. Instead, He sent a friend. And during the last break before the last session on a Saturday, uh, a man from our church who was seven years older than me sought me out of the multitude found me during that break time, and he said to me, Milton, I've, uh, I've been sitting on the second row, and there's a vacant seat right beside me. Why don't you come up and sit with me? And I thought, well, that'll be kind of neat to sit right under the nose of the speaker and to experience that. So I told him that I would, and uh, we went up there during the break, and I took my seat right next to this guy who was to become, during that season of my life, my very best friend. And while I sat there next to him and listened to the speaker in that final session, God got a hold of my heart just out of nowhere. My heart began to melt as I listened to the speaker tell story after story of how God had done amazing things in his life. And my heart began to burn with longing for God and to walk with him and experience his grace the way that the speaker seemed to. And. When it was time to close in prayer, I just I said these words to the Lord. I said, Lord, I don't even know what all of this means, but I want what he's got. I'll talk to you when I get home. That's what I said to the Lord. And I went home that night. It was on November the 13th. And I wrote out a prayer to the Lord. I still have a copy of that down in my office where I just surrendered my entire life to the Lord. And in my mind, what I knew that meant was I'm not just giving my life to the Lord, um, You know, in terms of my walk with Him, what that meant for me was I'm going into full-time ministry. That's what it meant. And so the whole trajectory of my life changed in that single moment. And I changed my major that I was planning on having in college from a business major to a Bible major and thus began a journey of preparing for the ministry. And I look back and the turning point was that last session of that conference. On the last day of that conference, where somebody sought me out, came alongside of me, had me sit beside them on the second row, and it was right there that the waterfall of God's grace began to fall on my heart and get a hold of me. Uh, Barring some later miracle at some other point, after that point of my life, I would not be standing in front of you today. I would not be pastoring this church. I would not be in the ministry today if it were not for that moment. And that man who reached out to me, And befriended me. And here's what touches me about that incident. I deserved a stern rebuke from the Lord or from somebody, but instead, God sent me a friend to come alongside of me, and that made all the difference. What that man was in my life at the age of 18 is what God wants you to be in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. The passage we're looking at this morning in verses one and two uh, is a passage in which God is going to show you how to do that, how you can be an agent of change in other people's lives the way that this brother was in my life. And what this passage does, and you're going to see this as we break it open, provides what amounts to a beautiful paradigm on how you can be a powerful agent of change in the lives of your brothers and sisters in the church. Essentially, what we're going to see are four pieces of counsel that God gives to us in these verses that are designed to help you to be an instrument of real, meaningful change in the lives of other people. Let me begin reading in verse 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers The older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Four pieces of counsel that we'll pull from this. Before we get to the first piece of counsel that we observe in verse one, I want you to imagine the scenario that Paul is envisioning. Um, You know, what is it that Paul has in his mind as he speaks these words in verses one and two? Is he just giving general counsel to Timothy Uh, here's kind of how to relate to other people or does he have something in particular in mind? If you want to know what he has in mind, what kind of situation or circumstance he has in mind, all you need to do is read the first few words of verse one. Do not sharply rebuke. That's as far as you need to go to then understand that as Paul is giving this counsel to Timothy, Paul is envisioning Timothy in circumstances where Timothy is encountering significant shortcomings in people that are in the church, shortcomings, failures, and sins in these other people in the church that would no doubt bring about a strong temptation in Timothy to harshly lash out verbally against them so Paul says don't sharply rebuke in other words Paul's imagining Timothy in circumstances where that's going to be Timothy's natural first response man I need to give that person an earful I need to rebuke them and Paul is saying in those situations where you see sin failure shortcomings in your brothers and sisters this is what I want you to do does that make sense you guys with me there Um, So here's the counsel. Basically, this is not just how to be an agent of change. But when you observe shortcomings, sin, failure and brothers and sisters in the church, maybe you're not just observing them passively. Maybe you're on the receiving end of those shortcomings, those sins, and you are left hurting and reeling. Maybe you're trying to lead a group of people in a certain direction that is a godly direction. But instead of um, everyone cooperating with that, there's someone who's actually in disobedience to what God's will is. And so you're feeling frustrated and maybe even righteously indignant and want to give that person an earful. Here's how you respond in those situations. By the way, am I loud? Okay, can we turn me down? Okay, not all the way down. All right, we're cool. All right. Number one, uh, counsel number one that Paul gives is this. When you find yourself in situations where you are now exposed to some wrongdoing, failure, shortcoming in someone else and to such a degree that you feel that urge to lash out at them. Counsel number one. Don't. OK, don't verbally lash out at such a person. Look what he says. Do not sharply rebuke. Now. Some of your translations, the King James, New King James, the English Standard Version, just have the word rebuke in the translation. Um, I think that's an unfortunate translation um, because later Timothy's actually commanded to rebuke. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, he's commanded to reprove and rebuke and exhort. Um, so, Timothy actually was supposed to do some rebuking, but that's not the word that is used here. The New American Standard comes a step closer to the meaning when it says sharply rebuke, but even that, I'm not sure, is strong enough. This is the Greek word epiplaso. Epi, which is a preposition that means upon, and then plaso, that means to strike at somebody, or actually, literally, to punch somebody. Now, Paul's not telling Timothy, don't punch people with your fists, but he's talking about verbal punching, verbal blows. He's saying, do not strike at somebody. Do not deliver verbal blows upon someone. Do not uh, verbally assault or inflict verbal violence on someone. I like the way the exegetical dictionary of the New Testament defines this particular word. They say it means to reproach or to snap at. Okay, you ever snapped at anybody? No? You ever been snapped at? Alright, we've all been snapped at at least. Um, uh, And so we know what that's like. That's what this means. Don't snap at somebody. Don't just uh, go unleashed on them and verbally assault them because of some wrongdoing or some failure or some shortcoming that is in their life. In fact, this is the Greek word epipleso we actually see the Greek word pleso, which is the root word that is found here back in chapter 3, verse 3. Uh, go back to that real quick. Chapter 3, verse 3. An elder is not to be addicted to wine or... What's it say? Pugnacious. That's the same root word that we find here in chapter 5, verse 1. It speaks of being verbally pugnacious. Timothy, do not be verbally Pugnacious. Do not verbally berate somebody because of some shortcoming in their life. I know you're going to feel at times that instinct, that urge, and it's going to be a powerful urge. You're going to be sure that it's from the Lord. Don't give in to that. Never verbally berate or assault or brother, a brother or sister in the church. You know, there are some people that you meet along the way that seem to act like they have the gift of rebuking, like that's their spiritual gift. And they seem to relish rebuking and they relish other people rebuking. Um, And they just they like that. And their 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 practices rebuke first and then ask questions later. And the truth is, all of us, to one degree or another, if you've been married longer than a year, guaranteed you've done this. You've rebuked first and then asked questions later and got information after the rebuked where you're realizing, actually, I probably should not have said what I said. Uh, and I think part of Timothy's idea or Paul's idea here is that even where rebuke legitimately, appropriately might be necessary, uh, don't make that your first choice. Don't make that your first choice. Don't make that the first thing that you do. But especially regarding this particular Greek word that means to verbally berate somebody or to snap at, Paul is saying, Timothy, set this aside. Don't verbally berate anybody. You know, in Proverbs twenty nine eleven, Solomon says, A fool speaks all his mind, but a wise one keeps it until afterwards. Um, you need to be very careful. God has not called you to speak all that goes on inside your mind. As you think about individuals or whatever frustrations that you feel, he's not called you to that. In fact, he calls people fools who are careless enough to, to do that. So Timothy, when you encounter shortcoming, failure, sin in the life of a brother or sister, you feel that urge to react against that by verbally berating that person, being pugnacious verbally, Don't give in to that instinct. Do not sharply rebuke. Now, look back at verse 1. I want to point something out here. On the surface, at the beginning of verse 1, it seems like Paul is only saying, don't sharply rebuke an older man, right? That seems to be what he's saying. You would get the impression that, OK, I can't sharply rebuke. I can't be verbally pugnacious with someone older than me, but I get to do that with people younger than me. Or I can verbally berate older women and younger women and younger brothers, but I just got to make sure that I check the person's age. If he's older than me, I can't verbally berate him. That's not what he's saying. In fact, let me show you on the screen behind me what's happening in the grammar of the passage. Uh, there's two verbs. In verses one and two, some of your translations, I think the ESV puts three verbs there, um, but there's actually only two verbs. He says, do not verbally strike at an older man. But instead of doing that, Paul says, but encourage, exhort appeal. We'll look at what that word means, but let's go with the word exhort. But exhort him, that older man, as a father Exhort younger men as brothers, exhort older women as mothers, exhort younger women as sisters. So he's not telling Timothy, don't sternly rebuke an older man, uh, but exhort him as a father. But then you can sternly rebuke everyone else. What he's saying as he's writing and his thoughts are unfolding, Timothy, don't sternly rebuke anybody. Whether they're older, younger, male or female, you need to set this aside. Verbal pugnaciousness, snapping at, striking at, verbally assaulting someone, set that aside. Don't ever do that under any circumstance with any of God's sheep. And instead of that approach, what I want you to do is to exhort. And that's the second piece of counsel that we observe here in verse one. Uh, Do not verbally strike at or lash out at somebody. Secondly, instead, he says, you need to engage in a ministry of exhorting them. By the way, just from a pragmatic standpoint, we all know that lashing out at someone doesn't work, right? Have you ever lashed out at someone? Husbands, wives, maybe you've lashed out at your spouse and your spouse and just you are mean pugnacious, nasty about it. And your spouse has just said, oh, I, I get it now, the magnitude of my sin. And I'm, I'm so thankful that God has made you an instrument in my life to help me to see the sin that I've been guilty of. Has that ever happened? I mean, it, it never works, even from a pragmatic standpoint. On top of that, God says, don't do it. Don't do it. Even when you feel that urge to do it, instead, engage in a ministry... Now, the word that is translated appeal in the new American standard is the Greek word para kaleo. The Greek word kaleo means to call and then para is a preposition that means to be alongside of. So to para kaleo someone literally is to come alongside of a person and to deliver a call from that person. Position literally, it means to call from along one's side. Um, So the idea is rather than talking down at somebody or even necessarily from a literal picture standpoint, being face to face with them and getting in their face and telling them something. The picture is rather that you come alongside of them, standing side by side with them, and then you deliver your message to them. This word implies in a context like this. It implies movement towards the person that you want to minister to. You position yourself beside that person. Then you speak to the person from that vantage point. It's more of a brotherly type of connection. So you see sin in another. Maybe that sin is against you. You feel an urge to lash out at them and um, either lash out at them or just walk away from them and say, I'm done with them. And what... God says it's no here. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to move towards that person. By the way, didn't God do that to you? Didn't he do that to us? He, he moved towards us. He became God with us, Emmanuel. And now he actually resides inside of us. That's pretty close And he's changing us day by day. And so that's what God has done. So to parakaleo someone in a context like this who you see sin, failure or shortcoming is you move towards them. You position yourself beside that person. Then you begin to speak to them from that position of friendship being alongside of them. I can't tell you how many times in my own life and ministry that I have had a stern rebuke speech rehearsed ready for delivery. And, but in those moments, God gave me grace to say, maybe I ought to talk to that person and give them a chance to talk, just find out how they're doing and what they're thinking before I give my speech. And there's been a number of times where I've sat down with the person, how things going, and they begin to open up, they begin to share. And 20 minutes later, I'm so glad that I didn't deliver the rebuke. Things are always simple from a distance, but you come alongside of someone and you start to look at life from their perspective and, and you see it in a more nuanced and accurate way. And that doesn't mean that rebuke is now not necessary. It may still be necessary, but you just realize, you know what, this brother or sister needs a little more from me than rebuke. Right now, at this moment, the only way you discover those things is by moving towards them and coming alongside of them to where when you do speak, you're on their side. You are an advocate for them. Now, at the very least, in a relational ministry context like this, to parakaleo someone is to move towards them, position yourself beside them and then speak to them from that position. But the next question is, well, when I do speak to them from that vantage point, what do I say? What do I say? that makes what I'm saying parakaleo. Uh, well, let me say this real quickly about the word parakaleo. By the way, say that with me. Parakaleo. One more time. Parakaleo. Uh, one dictionary I was looking at said that among this word is among the most important terms for speaking and influencing in the New Testament. If you're interested in making sure that your speech is what God wants it to be in your relationships with others and ministry to others. If you want to be a person of influence, and I believe that you do, you want to influence other people in the church, then you want to become expert. You want to understand what parakaleo is so that you are doing it effectively. And at the very least, what you know right now is instead of whatever parakaleo is, it's not brutalizing someone. It's not verbally bashing somebody or snapping at them. It is the opposite of that. It's moving towards them and coming alongside of them and then speaking words that need to be spoken from that vantage point. Now, if you go through the New Testament, you'll be amazed at all the places where parakaleo is used. And what you discover quickly is there's no single English word that fully can capture the breadth of meaning of this term. Let me give you five ideas of this term uh, by way of answering the question what does it mean to parakaleo in terms of the content of what we say? Uh, there are some passages where to parakaleo someone means to encourage them. That person stands in need of encouragement, and you speak words that leave them in a state of being encouraged. In fact, in Acts 1531, when the Jerusalem Council rendered a decision for the Gentile Christians about what they need to do and not do in terms of Jewish uh, scruples and and so forth. They drafted a letter. It was sent to the Gentile churches and there were people that went with the letter to read it to these churches. And it says in Acts 1531, when they had read it, they, the Gentiles, rejoiced because of its paraklesis. That's the noun form of parakaleo because of its encouragement. So there are times where to parakaleo someone simply means to encourage them. There are other times where the word clearly means to exhort. To exhort someone is halfway between requesting something and commanding someone. All right. There's words for commands. There's words for requesting. Exhort is right there in the middle on the spectrum of meaning. And usually when the word exhort is found, it means to urgently request. It's not, hey, I'd like for you to do this. You think you might be able to do this? No, it's it's a bled, a, a begging and pleading request that we find this in Romans twelve one, where Paul says, "I urge you, therefore, brethren." By the way, notice the alongsightedness of what he says here. Uh, Paul was an apostle; he had every right to speak as an apostle, but often in his epistles, he chooses rather to speak as a brother. He chooses to exhort. It's like, hey, in light of all these gospel truths that I've been looking at along with you, I'm I'm in your company. I'm a brother. You guys are my brothers and we all are experiencing the same gospel. And as one brother to other brothers, I alongside of you am urging you, I'm begging you, I'm beseeching you to present yourselves along with me as a living sacrifice to God. So the word can mean to encourage in some passages and other Passages It can mean to exhort with urgency. And then there's passages where to parakaleo someone clearly means to comfort them. It has the idea of comforting or consoling someone. Matthew 5, 4, blessed are they who mourn for they shall be parakaleoed. I love that. Uh, People that are mourning and weeping, you know what? They're going to get parakaleoed. And clearly, the idea is to minister comfort when someone is mourning; they need to be perakaleoed, lifted up in their spirit. Someone mourning over their sin, conviction over their sin; those people are going to get perakaleoed by God. We see the same use in Second Corinthians two seven. Paul had written a painful letter. Someone who was in the Corinthian church that had been involved in serious sin. Um, ultimately was broken over that sin. He repented over that sin. In fact, he's over repenting now because he's becoming overwhelmed with grief over the magnitude of his sin. And the Corinthians are like, what do we do with this guy? And Paul says to them, look at this, Second Corinthians two seven. so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and parakaleo him. Otherwise, if you don't forgive and parakaleo him, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So when you see a brother that is bowled over with conviction and grief over their sin, and you observe that, you to parakaleo a person in that state is to comfort them, to point them to the cross and say you're forgiven. And I forgive you. Walk in grace. Walk in the forgiveness of Christ. We hit the mother load on this word. Parakaleo in second Corinthians seven, where it shows up four times in just two verses. Uh, And I love this because there's so much texture here um, that's worth your study at a later point. Paul's describing himself saying, you know what? We had no rest. Our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted on every side. There were conflicts without. There were anxieties or fears within. But God, who parakaleos the depressed, parakaleos us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming, but also by the paraclesis with which he was parakaleos in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. The beauty of this is here we have Paul in all openness and transparency saying, I was tired. I wasn't able to sleep at night. I was afflicted from without facing conflicts from without feeling anxieties within. I was depressed. But you know what? Titus showed up and parakaleoed me. You Corinthians have owed me. God has owed me. And I am left now in a state of rejoicing. You see someone who's tired. You come alongside of them and you get to observe that, man, this person can't sleep at night. He's he's weary, he's tired, he's afflicted, he's overwhelmed with conflicts and troubles from without. This person is uh, roiling inside with anxieties and this person is depressed. What does he need? He needs to be parakaleot. He needs to be he needs someone alongside of him who can understand and try to see things from his perspective and then speak words that are designed To address those things. To parakaleo, someone also means to preach the word of God. To preach the word of God. This is one of the uses of the term. Means to point to God's word and explain this is what God's word says. Here's what it means by what it says. I call you to believe what God's word says. I call you to obey what God's word says. And here's how God's word applies to your life. And I'm calling you to apply that to your life. That's preaching, by the way. And that is parakaleo. That's the meaning of the term. In First Timothy 4.13, Paul says, Until I come, Timothy, give attention to the reading of Scripture and to the paraklesis. It's the same word, just the noun form of this word and to the teaching. So anytime that you come alongside of a brother and you're like, man, look at what God's word says and look at this promise. And man, you got to believe this and 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 walk in this. And here's how this applies to your particular situation. As you're explaining that and making those connections. From a position of being alongside of a brother or sister, what you're doing is you are parakaleoing them. There's one final nuance of this term that we observe, and I'm not making this up, guys. This is in the text. Uh, it means to evangelize, uh, to evangelize or to preach the gospel to somebody. Uh, one writer says this, Paul speaks of his preaching of the gospel as paraclesis And we actually have an example of that in 1 Thessalonians 2. As Paul is reviewing his ministry with the Thessalonians, he says, we had boldness in our God to speak to you. What? What's the content of what he spoke to them? The gospel of God. That's the content and amid much opposition. And then by way of describing that content of what he spoke, which was the gospel. Look at the word he uses for our paraklesis does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so that's the content of what we speak. Paul would say, take the gospel of Jesus Christ that I speak to people. Take every gospel truth that I speak when I declare the gospel. Draw a circle around it and you can put a label on it that says Paraclesis." He was comfortable using this term in describing his preaching of the gospel to both the lost and to the saved, And so as you look at these passages, and by the way, there's there's tons of others, I would encourage you guys to study out this term. And there's even other nuances that we don't have the time to get into this morning. My point is, this is a massive term that includes all sorts of things. And so that leaves us with the question, which of these particular nuances and meanings is Paul intending here when he tells Timothy in verse one to parakaleo somebody? My answer is, I don't know. I don't know. And Paul would say, here's what I mean. Anyone you're thinking about rebuking and lashing out at, how about you move towards them and come alongside of them? Try to see things from their perspective. See what the real needs are. And uh, whatever the needs are, address those needs as you speak to them from that position. If they're depressed, if they're discouraged, if they need to hear gospel truth, If they need the word of God explained to them, if they're full of anxiety, um, afflicted from without, from within, uh, if they need to be exhorted, whatever you see the need is, speak to that need. And when you're done, you can walk away and say, I have just paracletoed that person. Does that make sense? Um, I don't think we're doing any violence to this term to to leave it wide open. And Paul's just saying, whatever, within this big word, whatever you do, speaking in any of these ways to comfort, console, encourage, exhort, explain the Word of God, apply the Word of God, deliver counsel, offer help, evangelize, preach gospel or particular gospel truths, anything you do in the life of a person from the vantage point of being alongside of them fits within this category. We need to become... Expert at this. Let's go back in our minds to 2 Corinthians 7. Paul is full of anxiety. He's not sleeping at night, and he's depressed. You might, from a distance, if you were hanging out with them, observe that and say, "Man, what's with Paul? I mean, lately he's been depressed, and uh, it's obvious that he's full of anxiety." And and you know what? That's disobedience. That's disobedience. We're not supposed to be anxious. We're not supposed to be depressed. And so I know I'm going to go rebuke Paul. So you go to the Apostle Paul and say, you know what, dude, I've noticed that um, that you have been depressed. And what's that all about? I mean, the Bible says rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. So I just wanted to give you the scripture there to tell you that you're wrong to be depressed. And also, I've noticed that you're full of anxiety. And you know what? That's wrong because the Bible says, in fact, you, Paul, said, be anxious for nothing. And so you're living in disobedience to God's word there. So I just, as a brother, want to come to you and, and rebuke you for that. Uh, you can handle it that way. Or you can say, I'm going to parakaleo, my brother, Paul. I'm going to move towards him and come alongside of him. And so you do that and you say, hey, Paul, what's going on? What's going on? You seem... Like something's wrong. What's, what's wrong? And then he begins to open his heart and says, you know what? I, uh, I'm really worried about the Corinthians. Um, I've, they've been giving me fits. I'm worried about their walk with God. I'm worried about the glory of Christ's name um, in, in their church. And um, I, I've written them recently a very painful letter and I sent it with Titus to them. And it's been weeks since I've seen Titus. And honestly, in all transparency, I can't sleep at night. I I said some very difficult things in that letter. I don't know how they've taken it. I don't know if they're furious with me and they kicked Titus out of the church and has sent him back to me. Uh, I don't know if they've repented genuinely and that I should actually be rejoicing right now. Um, Or or maybe they've taken what I wrote and they're taking it very harshly, more harshly than I intended. And it's it's beaten them down and just leveled them and they're taking it to the extreme. And I I don't know any of this and I can't wait for Titus to get back. And so, yes, in all honesty, I've got anxiety. and, And because of that, I'm having trouble sleeping at night and feeling conflicted. And as a result of that exhaustion, yes, I'm I'm depressed. See, if you took the time to come alongside of Paul and to hear his heart, you would realize, man, what this brother needs is not a rebuke. He needs paracaleo instead. He needs to be comforted. He needs to be encouraged. And that doesn't mean that you don't say anything to him. You may say, hey, Paul, man, I understand that. Can Let's pray together. Paul, you know, you know that the Corinthians are in God's hands. You know that you've taught that and. They're totally under God's providential care. And Paul, God loves them even more than you love them. You know that. Yeah, you're right. He does. And so you know what? Let's take comfort in that. And and Paul, I know your anxieties, I totally understand that. But you got to give those to the Lord. You know, let's pray together. Let's try to give that to the Lord and entrust the care of the Corinthians to the Lord and His care. See, what you're doing in that moment is you're, instead of rebuking, You're seeking to understand and then you're ministering to Paul based on what you've come to understand as you came alongside of him. Does that make sense? That's that's what God calls from uh, from all of us. You might see a brother in the church who's who's weeping after the service. You don't go up to him and say, hey, the Bible says rejoice always again. I say rejoice. No, no. You sit down and weep with them as he weeps. What's going on? Hear what he has to say. And, and then ask God to give you wisdom to parakaleo him according to what his need is in that moment. Um, so, Timothy, regarding shortcomings, failures, sins that you see in others where you might actually feel an urge to... Lash out at them to rebuke them too harshly or to snap at them. Number one, don't do that. Number two, instead, move towards them and choose instead of rebuke, harsh rebuke, a ministry of parakaleo. And then a third piece of counsel that we can infer from this is stay involved and keep on exhorting. Keep on doing parakaleo however long is necessary. There's something that's really significant here um, that doesn't immediately come out in the English text. Look at verse one with me. Do not sharply rebuke. That's aorist tense. All right. The picture seems to be of a of a moment of confrontation. Do not in a moment, as it were, come to somebody and sharply rebuke them or snap at them. At an older man, but rather present tense, be continuously parakaleoing them. It's a distinction between uh, just kind of a brief, succinct moment of rebuke of somebody and an ongoing ministry of coming alongside of somebody and uh, being in there for the long haul saying what needs to be said, being there for that person to make yourself a part of the solution, a part of the change that God wants to see in their life. You encounter someone who's having marriage problems. What do you do with that? You say, well, you know what? Sit down. I got 30 minutes here. I'm going to walk you through what the Bible teaches about, about marriage. And so you give it to them, an outline, bullet point form, uh, and say, study this. And uh, basically, I've done my job. Let's close in prayer. Two weeks later, someone says, hey, they're still having trouble. What? I can't believe that. I walked them through everything they needed to know. We all know that's silly. What a couple like that needs is they need you to come alongside of them. Speak truth, comfort, encourage, speak gospel, make gospel connections, show them God's word and how to apply God's word to their marriage. And you do that and. And then you do it again and you do it again. And a week later, they forgot what you just told them. So you tell them again and you just keep uh, sometimes saying the same thing over and over again until they finally begin to get it. It's just like with our kids. We We don't just say, give them an instruction one time and then our kids for the rest of their life never need to be told again. The same is true of our brothers and sisters. The same is true of us. God says the same thing to us over and over again. And so we need to realize that if you really want to be an agent of change in someone's life, then you need to lay aside any illusion that you just kind of come in like a white knight in shining armor and you just kind of rebuke and and speak truth and then you're on your way. No, you come alongside of someone and you're going to have to journey with them and be in there for the long haul, to be a help, to try to gain understanding of what they're going through. And then, and then day after day, week after week, Maybe even year after year, be speaking truth and sometimes repeating yourself if you have to until they get it. I love what Martin Luther says, even about the gospel. He says, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary it is that we know this article well, teach it to others and beat it into their heads continually. He that That's a pastor talking there. Who understands what ministry is often like. You just got to say the same thing over and over and over again until they get it. And those connections are made. And so, you know, a lot of times we don't want to get involved in this. It's like it, it would be great if all we had to do was come and speak truth. And in one magic moment, the person is changed forever by those beautiful words that we spoke. But that's not often the way it is. We need to be there for the long haul. Come alongside of them. Walk with them. Journey with them. And keep on exhorting however long is necessary. Don't sharply rebuke. And the way I like to think of it, don't punch and run. uh, Which is uh, easy to do. Be there for the long haul. When I was growing up, my younger brother was faster than me. And... Uh, The way he dealt with shortcomings and failures and sin that he observed in me is he would punch me and uh, and then he would run. And it was the most frustrating thing because I would run after him furious so that I could um, express myself upon him, um, but I could never catch up with him. And uh, and on the rare occasions that I did at that point, we were both too exhausted to do anything. But that's how he dealt with the shortcomings he saw in me. He'd come in, punch, and then take off running. And we can sometimes be guilty of that verbally. Just, man, there's a problem that we see in someone, and that problem has affected us or affected our kids, and we're, we're really angry about that. And we come, we get in their face, and, and we start talking to them, and we give them an earful. And ladies, you know what I mean. You get that neck thing going as you're talking to them. And... and <laughs> And by the time you're done, you walk away and you feel really good. You know, that went really well because I express myself and I feel a lot better. But you leave that person devastated. You come in in a single moment and you punch and you run. Paul says to Timothy and all of us, just forget that. That's not the way of Christ. That's not the way to be a change agent. You don't leave a trail of change, transform people behind when you... Handle things that way. But rather than that, just come alongside of that person and tell me what you see. How can I pray for you? And be a friend to them and and then minister to them. Whether it's comfort, exhortation, encouragement, teaching, instruction, Bible, doctrine, gospel, whatever. Be there for them. And be prepared for the long haul. God is there for the long haul for you. There's a fourth and final piece of counsel that we can observe here that Paul gives to Timothy and God gives to all of us if we want to be a change agent in the lives of people. And that is intentionally cultivate a relational context in which your exhortations can be delivered. Intentionally cultivate a relational context in which exhortations can be delivered. Never when it comes to ministry And you speaking truth to other people and being an agent of influence for Christ. Never underestimate, never underestimate the importance of a relational context with that person. And that's what Paul is teaching Timothy here. He says, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. What he's saying is, Timothy, I want you not just in your moment of parakaleo, I want you all the time to treat that older man with the honor and the respect and the love that you would show to a father. He's not telling Timothy, hey, you can ignore that old man, but hey, when there's a problem and you got to go to him, make sure you treat him as a father. No, the idea is, yes, in that moment of parakaleo, you are doing so, treating him with honor and respect and love as you would a father. But Paul would say, I want you at all times to be loving that man. I want that man all the time to get this vibe from you that you love and respect and honor him. And that's just the way things go. And then when something comes up and you need to step into his life, there's a relational context in which you are coming into that man's life. And, and you deliver that. Terakaleo. In a way that shows respect and honor and love. For him as a father, Paul, then elaborates further with younger men, relate to younger men at all times with the love, the camaraderie of brothers, he says and to the younger men as brothers, the younger men in the church. And that could include Timothy, people your age, and it could include people 20 years younger than you. It's interesting. He never tells Timothy to relate to someone as a father to a son, not that that would necessarily be wrong. But he's saying, older men, you treat them as fathers, but anyone your age or or even younger, even 30 years younger, you relate to them as a brother. And uh, he's like, I I want you to celebrate your brothers, receive them, embrace them as a part of your gospel inheritance. That's the vibe that I want them to be getting from you to where you love them. You love having them in your life. Uh, You love living the Christian life together with them. And then when those moments come, where where they need ministry, you've already got that relational context to minister to them in. And then also regarding older women, uh, his basic teaching is relate to older women at all times with the honor and the care and the love that's due to to mothers. So the older women in the church should feel loved and appreciated by you and And you should honor them, care for them, and be concerned about their well-being. And that's the vibe that they need to be getting from you. And then when you do come to them to minister to them, there's that relational context that is there. And then, lastly, be relating to younger women at all times with the love, the protectiveness, and purity that is due to sisters Um, Your sisters, the younger women in the church, are a part of your gospel inheritance, Timothy, and I want you to celebrate them and uh, receive them as a part of your gospel inheritance. They need to know that you're glad that they're in your life and that God has given you not just brothers. And fathers and mothers in the faith, but that he's given you sisters and you're thrilled about that. But then I love what he adds here. Timothy, in terms of your relationship with the younger women in the church, make sure that it is in all purity or in all chastity. Not just chastity, but all chastity. Timothy, you be extremely careful with this. Celebrate them as your sisters and cherish them as a part of your gospel inheritance. But there is never, ever to be a crossing of the line to where there is sexual immorality that is going on between you and these sisters. And I think when he says with all purity or chastity, part of what he's also meaning is that you need to make sure that you never relate to a sister in a way that the thought even comes into that sister's mind that I wonder If Timothy's thinking something that he should not be thinking, I wonder if there's more here than than what meets the eye. And I think he's also saying, Timothy, you make sure that while you celebrate your sisters, that you relate to them in such a way and make sure that they relate to you in such a way that anyone around who's observing would never have a thought occur to them or a question where they wonder if there's something that is not chaste that is happening between you. Love your sisters, celebrate them, but purity. And Paul just he knows the human heart. He knows tendencies that are still there because of indwelling sin. And he's like, Timothy, you need to be on guard. But let's sweep all of this together. The point is, Timothy, I want you to be all about relationships I want you to be celebrating your brothers and sisters, your mothers and fathers in the faith. You need to be loving them and celebrating them and cherishing them and investing in and cultivating and nurturing this kind of relational atmosphere with them so that in that context, whenever you minister to them, your ministry will resonate. You guys understand how important relationship is to ministry? Um... I remember a lady that uh, uh, a couple that used to attend our church, an older couple earlier in their life. They had a daughter that died of cancer. And it was back when they were attending another church uh, somewhere, I think, on the East Coast. And, but I heard from this lady three or four times how much it bothered her when as she's grieving the loss of her daughter that people in the church would come up to her and say, well, at least she's in heaven. That it irritated her to where years later, when they were at Cornerstone, she's still complaining about that and how much it bugged her. But I remember I was over at their house visiting with her and her husband, and we got to talking about that, uh, the death of their daughter, and she began to tell me about A letter that someone had written to her during that time and how much it blessed her. And she said, in fact, let me find it. And she pulled it out and she said, read this. This, this is the way to minister comfort. This utterly blessed me to tears. And so I read it and it was amazing. In this letter, this man from their church was saying, I am so sorry for your loss. I don't know what to say. I, um, I can't even begin to imagine the grief that you are experiencing. And I'm asking God, just, just let me in on a small sliver of what they are feeling so I can carry some of this for them. And, and uh, just expressing grief along with them and coming inside their circle of pain and really coming alongside of them in that way to where he was joining them and their sorrow to the best that he could. And yet he was admitting, I can't, I, I can't even begin to feel what you're feeling. And then amazingly, as I'm reading the letter, he said this, I find great consolation in the fact that your daughter is in heaven. He said exactly what other people said that irritated her. But coming from him, it meant the world to her. You know why? Because relationship. Because in that moment... He took the time to step inside and genuinely uh, come alongside of them in their sorrow. And then from that vantage point of being alongside of them, he spoke those words, which feels a lot different than someone standing outside your circle of pain who won't come in and they throw those words at you. It's very different. The difference is the position from which those words are spoken. So, guys, I'm not saying that, you know, okay, you see a problem in a brother's life and you're like, man, all right, I, I, I need to deal with him about this. But I guess I need to spend the next six months developing a relationship. I'm not saying that. But before you jump in rebuking, come alongside that person. And just in the context of one meeting, just say, what's going on? How can I pray for you? And, and love that person. Come alongside of them. And there may be opportunity even in that encounter to be able to say, what needs to be said. Or maybe you'll realize I need to hold off on this because they don't need rebuke. They need comfort. They need encouragement in other ways. I'm going to close here, but I'm going to do one warning. Okay, Um, in light of a message like this, it's easy for everyone to become suspicious. If after we close in prayer, someone comes up to you and says, hey, brother, let's go to lunch. Uh, hey, sister, you want to sit next to me next Sunday on the front row? Um, And we can kind of get paranoid about, so why are you now being nice to me and call me brother or sister? You know what? Just tell me what's wrong with me. Just be up front with it. Um, But you know what? We don't just say those things and act like brothers and sisters as a means to some rebuke. Let's just enjoy each other. That's what it's all about. Let's enjoy each other as brother and sister, mother and father. I mean, we're all a part of each other's gospel inheritance. Let's live daily in the enjoyment of that. And then when things come up and we, God, we feel like God wants me to be an agent of change in this person's life, then okay, I can, I can step in and I can do that. But loving one another, being kind to one another is not a means to that end, but it is an important uh, thing to establish That context. So let's love each other and receive love without suspicion. Okay?